Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today, we're bringing you a conversation from Fidelity Canada's Vision 2024 event in Toronto. Vision offers insights from our portfolio managers and investment experts and provides their comments on the current market environment, Fidelity's investment process, and our global research network operation. The following conversation is with portfolio manager Connor Gordon, who co-manages Fidelity's Global Small Cap Opportunities Fund. He talks about his journey into Fidelity, how Fidelity uses its breadth of research and resources, and he elaborates on the security selection process in his fund. This conversation was recorded on January 31st, 2024. Connor, uh, small caps, global small caps. I'm a little perplexed. <laughs> typically a very inefficiently covered asset class, typically not doing well with high interest rates because of the leverage. What's the case for small caps right now? Yeah, you know, uh, one of my guiding philosophies is study history, observe the present, and try and anticipate the future, right? So when you study history, you realize pretty quickly that everything is cyclical. So let's go back in time. You know, you go back to the 1960s and you had the nifty 50 growth stocks, mm-hmm. right? 1970s, it was nothing but energy. Uh, 1980s, Japan. 1990s, tech bubble. 2000s, it was all, you know, China, commodities, EM. And basically for the last, you know, what, 10, 12 years? It's been nothing but U.S. large cap growth stocks, tech stocks in particular. So, you know, I kind of ask myself, you know, are the Magnificent Seven going to continue to push the market and lead the market higher? Potentially, but I think it'd be historically inconsistent, right? So I think at the very least, there's a really good case to be made for diversification. So small caps versus large caps, global versus just U.S. and sectors outside of tech. And that's kind of exactly where Chris and I play with the Global Small Cap Opportunities Fund. You know, the second thing I'd say is everyone wants to talk about the stock market. And Chris and I talk, we don't talk about the stock market. We talk about a market of stocks, mm-hmm. right? So our universe is 6,000 companies to look at. And, you know, I think, you know, we have a global mandate. And the whole point is, there's always a bull market somewhere. It's our job to go find it. So, you know, our job is to take that 6,000, you know, universe, 6,000 stock universe. And we might own 40, 50, 60 stocks. So we're looking for the top 1%. And if we can do that, we can do our job well. You know, hopefully we can put together a balanced, concentrated portfolio with, you know, a return stream that is, you know, not particularly correlated with whatever the top, you know, whatever, you know, had Fang, Fab Five, Magnificent Seven, Grade Eight, whatever you want to call it. We want something that's less correlated. We should also make sure that we compare and contrast small caps, particularly U.S. ones, with Canadian small caps that so many of us are thinking about. <laughs> yeah, look, I mean, when you say global small cap, right? So the, I think what you're probably getting at is, you know, the average small cap in our fund, the average market cap of the company that we own is roughly five to six billion dollars U.S. So we are not talking about, you know, Canadian oil and gas company. We're not talking about unprofitable tech company. We're not talking about some speculative biotech. Like, these are real businesses, you know, proven businesses, but ones that we still think have a lot of room to continue to run. Okay, so they're bigger than we would think. We've got uh, lots of runway with uh, small caps. It's great to diversify away from the magnificent six or seven that everybody's focused on right now. Let's talk about your background and Chris Malodzinski's yeah. background. You're a kid from Stratford, not a kid anymore. Chris is a kid from Barrie. Correct. Can you talk on his behalf? He's not here to defend himself, but we're going to go with whatever you say. But let's start with you. Talk about your background, what led you to this. Same with Chris. 
and then we'll talk about how you became a combo. Yeah, you know, Chris and I have been working together at Fidelity for almost 15 years. The last five, formally as uh, portfolio managers on the strategy. And, you know, when Andrew Marchese came to Chris and I in the middle of 2018, mm -hmm. you know, he said, we think there's an opportunity here, right? So you two have been working together for, at that point, it had been like 10 years. But, you know, we think there's an opportunity to put you together. You look at the, you look at the stock market in the same way, but you've got complementary backgrounds. So I had done, you know, focused on the Canadian team on uh, industrials, tech, and healthcare. Chris done the opposite. Mm -hmm. He had done consumer and financials. Point being... You put us together. We have almost 100% coverage as analysts uh, you know, across the market in all the sectors. And then you give us the biggest opportunity set global and you know, inefficient opportunity set in small caps. And our, you know, our goal is go out and find best, you know, a, a nice concentrated portfolio, best ideas portfolio to go out and generate alpha clients. What brought you into this investment industry? What brought me into the industry? I mean, I've been a bit of a freak, I think, when I was a kid. You know, I've been reading investment books since I was 12 years old. So I grew up in a small town in uh, Stratford, or Stratford and St. Mary's, but southwestern Ontario. And I don't come from a, a financial, back or financial background. My dad still sells pig equipment. And at the time, my, dad, you know, my mom was a, was a, a server at a cafe. Mm -hmm. And you know, so every Saturday, we'd go down to the cafe. My, my sister and I, my dad, and my dad would get a coffee, and I would read the newspaper. But I'd read the sports pages. And you know, at some point... I went too far because I got into the business section, right? And at that, that, that time in the newspaper, all the stock tables were at the back, right? So I started, you know, what, what is this? And my dad kind of explained, you know, there's, uh, these are, these are the stock market, right? These are all companies. And you start going down the list and it's like, oh, Coca-Cola, Hershey, you know, as a 12 year old, this is something I'm interested mm -hmm. in. So you're telling me I can own the candy company? Yes. Okay. Well, you know, so ever since then, you know, and then like, you know, go across the street, first book I ever picked up, well, actually second book. First book, my dad gave me Dow 36,000, which I don't know if everyone anyone mm -hmm. remembers that book, like during the bubble. But you know, second book, luckily, was One Up on Wall Street by Peter Lynch. Mm -hmm. So, you know, interest in fidelity, you know, since I was 12 years old and here I am today. And what can you say about Chris from his background? Yeah, I mean, Chris, same thing. You know, he, you know, from Barry, went to UBC and, you know, was on the, uh, you know, pretty prestigious investing program at, uh, at school. And, you know, both came to fidelity as interns. So, you know, First and only place I think we've ever worked and don't have any, any intention of leaving. Who has been a mentor to you at Fidelity? Uh, I mean, everyone. Uh, so, you know, I think the one thing, thing about Fidelity is you get to see what works, right? Will talked about having the, the spectrum, right? Mm -hmm. And you, you get to figure out not just what works, but wor what works for you. I think as an investor, you know, the number one thing you need to learn is you know, stay true to yourself, invest true to yourself. So, you know, when, you know, I think... You, the great thing is you get to learn and pick and choose what parts of everyone's style works for you. So, you know, working with, you know, people like Mark Schmel, right? Very different investment style, but, you know, what do you learn from Mark is, you know, I always, you know, he always used to say, like, what does success look like, right? Think about, you know, you have to, you have to think about the upside as well as the downside. Mm -hmm. And be, being a successful investor means balancing both. You know, Mark's, you know, hypervigilant and hyper-ruthless on and unemotional about cutting losses, right? And, you know, I have a saying that losers average losers. Right. So when you are wrong, you cut and run. You don't make you don't make up new excuses on a stock where your thesis is wrong. You know, learning from Hugo Lavallee covers mm -hmm. covers who runs uh, you know Greater small Canada, cap, Greater yeah. Canada. You know, contrarian investing. Mm -hmm. If you want you know differentiated returns, you got to do something different. And you know, you, you find mispricing where there is uncertainty, and you have to be willing to when you know during periods of uncertainty, you need to be willing to make a bet. Right. So I think all these people. Um, you know, you learn from great people, you get mentored, and you get to pick and find what works. 
Chris and yourself created global small cap opportunities from an institutional standpoint yep. in 2019, and then the fund came out in 2020, in 2022. It's about a half a billion in size now, but 1,400 advisors, uh, thank you to the supporters in the, in the room, yeah. have bought the fund for thousands of clients. Talk about security selection that has led you to that success so far. Yeah, I think, you know, when you're formulating, so going back to that point I just made, you know, if you want to beat the market, you have to do dip something different than the market. So when we're talking about our strategy, you know, there's three big words that we need to remember. So quality, change, and dislocation. Quality, change, dislocation. Quality is the filter. Change and dislocation is the trigger. So that 6,000 stock universe I talked about, right? Everything goes through the quality bucket. Everything we do, everything we do starts with a quality lens, right? That's the filter. So what does quality mean? You know, I think everyone talks about quality, but to us loosely defined, quality means three things. It's profitability, it's predictability, and it's growth. So quality or uh, profitability, right? We kind of almost exclusively focus on companies that earn high return of capital and are free cash flow generative. You look at our portfolio, you're not gonna find money losing, you know, Will talked about not buying money losing companies. Mm. You're not gonna find money losing companies, levered companies, things like that. We want companies that are profitable today. Two, predictability. We wanna be able to look out, call three years, and have a pretty good idea of what that company looks like and what the earnings power of that business is. So, you know, simple reason. If you can't predict what a company's gonna earn, you can't value it. If you can't value it, you shouldn't buy it. You're not investing, you're speculating. So um, we, you know, almost exclusively focus on things that are very predictable. So we don't do things like commodities. So I do not, I have no idea where the price of oil, the price of copper is going. It's not us. You know, we don't do things with binary science risk. We don't do biotech. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't do things, you know, we're, we're very selective in tech, but we don't do a ton of tech. I was, you know, used to cover tech uh, as an analyst. And I think, you know, in general, short product cycles, a lot of obsolescence risk. So, you know, if we don't have a high confidence of what that company's going to earn, call three plus years, we just don't touch it. Growth, right? Ultimately, we want companies where the intrinsic value is growing, not shrinking. So we really focus on companies, ideally, that are taking market share in, in, in growing industries. And when you do that, and, you know, Chris and I have been building a Rolodex of companies for 15 years, where we've, you know, you know, done the analysis, we've met the management teams, and we have a rough idea of what we want to pay, mm -hmm. that list shrinks to about five, 600 stocks, right? So we have our quality list. And then we kind of sit and we wait. And, the, you know, the problem with, the, you know, investing in quality is the market's a pretty efficient place, right? These things don't get mispriced that often. And I think if you want to really outperform, if, you know, if you invest in efficient markets, you are going to get average returns. We're looking for extraordinary returns. So we need to find the exceptions. And we found that you find exceptions in two types of situations, okay? Companies undergoing some sort of transformative positive change. Uh, so think of, you know, companies that have new products, new management teams, maybe they're doing an acquisition or a divestiture. Maybe there's some sort of regulatory change or industry consolidation, it doesn't matter. Something is changing where the future, the earnings power of that business, look structurally, you know, significantly higher than they do in the past, mm -hmm. right? And it's in that gap that we can form a differentiated view of the future, right? But, you know, maybe just, you know, an example, just to, you know, mm -hmm. uh, kind of illustrate what, what we do. So a company that we own, uh, it's in the top 10, a company called XPO. Mm -hmm. And XPO is a uh, less than truckload, so LTL, less than truckload trucking company in the United States. And XPO had always Sorry, kind of- what, what kind of truckload company? Less than truckload. What does that mean? 
So big, less than a truckload. Yeah. You, 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 so TL truckload is uh, you know if you're on the highway at 401 and you're going down, you see a big like you know uh, van. That is that is a truckload. Uh, LTL is kind of the smaller things that you see inside the uh, you know city limits. Let's say. Uh, you know, th this would be going from a warehouse to a factory and back. We've just learned board. truck jargon. This is great. So, keep, sorry, <laughs> keep going. Um, so, you know, this company actually had been a bit of a laggard. So, there's two big peers in the industry. The best one is, is a company called Old Dominion Freight Lines. It's a large cap uh, in SIA. Um, and, you know, we'd followed the company, but they kind of always underperformed. And then something happened, right? Uh, April of last year, they make a big announcement. They have a new management, big management change. So, a guy by the name of Dave Bates, who was previously the COO of Old Dominion Freightline, best company in the industry, he's passed over. We found this out later, but he gets passed over for the second time to be CEO. He says, "Enough's enough. I'm leaving," and he goes to XPO. Okay, this is what this is. The, this is the trigger to say, "Hey, we need to do some more work," right? And says, "Okay." So we work with our analyst Peyton Lisk to say, "Okay, going back to you know, what Mark would say, what does success look like?" If he comes in and they hit the targets that they're looking for, what you know? What could happen? And you know, the answer we got was, hey, you know, earnings could double, and you know that that valuation gap that you have between those two peers of like, you know, the multiple to go up fifty percent. Mm -hmm. So when you have that setup where all of a sudden, you know, transformative change, earnings can double, the valuation go up fifty percent. You have the recipe for a stock that can go up two or three x. So we start buying. You know, that's why we bought the stock in April. Um, I think it was around $40. I think it's you know, over 80 today. How right? was it presented to you? Was that from a meeting you went to, or was it an analyst that came to you and said, Connor, you got to check this it's, out? It's, you know, it's 10, years of doing, 10, 15 years of doing meetings, mm -hmm. right? I think mm -hmm. that's why we're always meeting companies. You know, Will talked about it. You're just always meeting companies, mm -hmm. always updating that Rolodex. Because you know, I like to say it's old research, new events, mm -hmm. right? Things change. The world changes. And when, when you can adapt. And you know, the prices go up and down every day. And you know, the stock market gives you the opportunity to, to find these mispricings, right? To find stocks when they are trading, you know, the market goes up, we'll call it eight to 10% a year over time, rough give or take. Mm -hmm. You know, we're looking for opportunities where our prospective return is materially higher than that, right? So that's, I guess, positive change. The other bucket that we look for, a temporary dislocation. So that's change in dislocation. Think of this as great business, temporary but fixable problem. And the key is fixable because a lot of problems are structural and this is how you get stuck in value traps. So um, a company that we own today still is a company called DeMont. They are a Danish hearing aid company. So I, you know, I used to cover healthcare as an analyst. I always admire, there's, there's, well, there's, five, there's, four, there's really four companies in the world that make hearing aids. They're all in Europe. So there's two in Denmark, one in Switzerland, and one in Germany. Uh, DeMont's the second biggest company, or second biggest hearing aid company. And you know, think about just secular trends, right? Talking about growth, growth and intrinsic value. Aging population, technology is getting better, so people are getting hearing aids earlier. And these companies had always kind of grown revenues at, I don't know, six, seven, eight percent a year. You throw in some margin expansion, you get like 10% profit growth. Problem, you know, they always trade at 25 plus times range, right? And when you get to a valuation like that, it's really hard for us to underwrite the type of return that we are looking for. But sometimes you, you know, you get an opportunity. So great company, hit with a cyber attack, they come out and profit warn. Company pulls guidance and basically says, you know, we have no idea what this, what, you know, our ERP wow. is completely, you know, messed up. We don't know what we're going to earn. We don't know where deliveries are. It's going to take, you know, two or three quarters to fix this. Okay. Market starts running away. Ton of uncertainty. Okay. We love uncertainty because that stock trades down to like 15 times. We can look out from 25. Yeah. From 25, 30, trades down to what we think is 15 times normalized earnings, right? It's not deep value, but all of a sudden, so what are we getting? 
we get a chance to buy a company that historically has kind of grown, that's seven, eight percent revenues, called 10 percent. And on top of that, we get to tack on like a you know six, seven percent free cash field. So right there, we think we're underwriting, you know, high teens return with upside as that multiple, hopefully, re-rates from 15 to 20 or 25 times earnings as that problem goes away. Mm-hmm. Right? That is like an ideal setup that we're looking for. So, you know, do something different, change in dislocation. We're really trying to avoid the lazy middle. Um, and truly try and generate some differentiated returns. There's a question that's come in about the qualities of great management teams in small cap companies. Typically founder-led? It can be. Mm. Um, you know, we talk about founders, but even, you know, Satya, at like, you know, it's, it, we, we often say re-founders, mm. right? So mm. you can often have a great company that's lost its way and have a new management team come in that thinks like a founder, that's incented like a founder, um, and can completely rejuvenate. Like, it's, it's incredible sometimes. Like, you know, as an analyst... I covered industrials and I watched, I was kind of the part of the proxy contest with Pershing Square, um, you know, was, was helping, you know, Fidelity with, during that process or as the analyst for, for Fidelity during that process. And it's incredible to see what happens with a company, an underperforming company, when you bring in someone like an incredible CEO like Hunter Harrison and you just get to watch it, like how the performance of two companies, or the same company can, can be so different under mm-hmm. the leadership mm-hmm. of a different person, right? Um, you know, when we are... You know, the best thing, you know, it's, it's, there's a, we often say with management teams, when we're meeting management teams, what's the say do gap, right? What do they say versus what do they do? And the best thing to do is just look at the track record and, you know, have they delivered on what they said they're going to deliver? And that's where having a long tenure, um, having, you know, law, you know, cost being around for sort of 10 or 15 years, having analysts that are around for a long time, having that research database, we can go back and verify. Have, or have they delivered on what they said they're going to deliver? And then the second thing is, you know, what do they say versus what they did do? Just look at the incentives. I spend a lot of time with proxies, right? And you can, if you want to know how someone's going to act, just look at how they're going to get paid, right? And I think the one thing in small cap land is, you know, versus maybe an S&P 500 company that is a big conglomerate, for example, the companies are smaller. So the CEO actually has a lot more impact on the underlying operating or operations of a, of a whatever, like a $2 billion company versus like a $200 billion company. So really just pay attention. What do they say they're going to do? How are they getting paid? How often have you sat in a meeting with a CEO or a CFO of a company and said, you keep saying you're going to do this, but you keep doing that? Do you ever call them out on it? I'm sure you've been in meetings where that's happened. Uh, it happens pretty frequently. Yeah. Uh, I, I have a bit of a, I have a reputation um, for uh, here comes the truth. Right? Asking management teams why the story that they are presenting me do not match the numbers that they have reported. Uh, to, let's just put it politely. Um, but look, I think it's like you, you know I need look. You know, there's a lot. Like this is a simple example. But imagine so companies report adjusted numbers. Right? Oh, we get, we grew our adjusted EBITDA. It's like, why is it that adjusted numbers simply, you know, tend to just ignore the bad stuff? They never adjust out the good stuff, right? So, you know, we try to focus on, you know, you know, what is the underlying earnings of the company? How does management present that? Mm-hmm. And, you know, just ultimately have they executed on what they said they're going to do? Well, it helps that you're paid on performance. That's why you're digging into these corners, right, when you have these meetings. Question here, I think it's a two-parter. And it's saying, what, are, what do you consider to be the most significant challenge when managing a small cap portfolio in the current environment? And how do you navigate the, is there a second page? We could just make up the rest. <laughs> but what do you consider being the most significant challenge when managing, managing in this environment? And particularly with high interest rates, I guess we touched on that a little bit at the beginning, but just reiterate the challenges specific to this market. 
I'm not sure there's, there, is, there is a difference, right? I think the small caps versus large caps. I think one of the great things that, about looking at small caps is I can get a lot more granularity, right? So it just pick like whatever, you know, think of like a, a large, you know, multi-industry conglomerate large cap, right? Actually, you know what? Let's talk like GE before mm -hmm. they split up, right? So GE, you know, used to be a conglomerate of, you know, jet engines, turbines, financial services. Mm -hmm. Like there's like, with, literally within that, there's four or five companies that you, like on their own, are S&P 500 companies, right? And they're all, you know, presented in the same format. In, you know, sorry, in the same financial statements. And you, like you get one little segment, okay? If I'm dealing with a, you know, two to five or $10 billion market company or market cap company, it's a lot smaller. It's a lot easier to wrap your hands around. And I think ultimately, because we can, you know, work with our analyst team and form a differentiated view on the drivers of the business, mm -hmm. it's a lot easier to get a differentiate, you know, a, an edge on what a company's gonna do in the future versus, you know, trying to guess whether or not GE is gonna grow at 3% next quarter or 4% next quarter, right? The, the margin of error is just not big. We wanna think big. Let's talk about global exposure because it is global small cap opportunities. We don't wanna think that it's just the United States based product. There is a lot of US yep. names in it, but I think you're about 40% outside of the US. Can you talk about markets that you like right now? And also what access do you and Chris have as far as, or are you traveling? Are you going yeah. to, they're coming to us, but are you going to see them? Yeah, so you know, I think one of the things that sometimes gets lost a little bit is that you know, you see me or you see Chris, you see Will or Hugo, Dan and Max, or, uh, you know, there are, there's a team behind us, right? And, you know, Peter Lynch has a saying, you know, he says, the person who turns over the most rocks wins the game, right? So whoever sees the most companies, whoever or analyzes the most companies, whoever meets the most management teams, the more likely you're going to find a great investment idea. And that helps, it helps to do that when you have a great team. And we have over 100 analysts around the world who wake up every single day and try and you know, meet, meet management teams, go to conferences, hit trade shows, and they're all filtering that information yeah. up, right? So you know, it's, very, it's much more likely that we are going to find something when we have a great team working with us, right? And so you know, just another example. So a company that we own uh, in the fund is a company called Deterrent. And Deterrent is a, is a Belgian-listed family holding company. And you know, we found this company back in 20, around the time we launched the launch, launch strategy. So, and you know, came in from our analyst in, uh, sitting in London. And there was a, you know, we got our note pack, start of the day. And there's a headline that says, you know, uh, family, controlling family had sold 50% of Belron to a private equity company, uh, Clayton de Villiers and Rice. And you know, it's the, there's that flag again, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, you know. And they changed the management team. Private equity team comes in and completely changes the management team. And the first thing we say is, okay, like what is Deterrent, what's Belron? And it became, you know, you dig into it for about five minutes and you realize you know, many people in this room have probably used their product. So they are, they own Speedy Glass. They are the biggest auto glass replacement company mm -hmm. in the world, you know, Safe Light in the US, right? So Belgium listed, main business is in the US, and it's buried inside of a, of a holding company. So, you know, but we find it because the analyst is based in London and has a relationship. So we dig into it and we say, okay, this asset looks like it's under earning, right? The company, Belron, was doing like 5% margins. So you can do some pretty basic benchmarking. So we work with our Canadian analyst here, Bobby Reynolds, who covers autos, uh, Boyd here in Canada. 
Uh, we can work with our European team, and you can do some benchmarking and say, you know what, that 5% margin, they should probably be doing 20. So we think, you know, we form this view that we think the earnings of the company can, you know, triple or quadruple if the new management team executes. Okay. And, you know, the one thing that we know, so that's like number one. The other differentiated view that we can form is we know that there is a catalyst path because what did private equity do? They need to monetize at some point. So, you know, we, we, you know, we, we purchased the stock and, you know, we wake up. And, they, and, started, and they had, the company had sold Belron at, a, at an implied valuation of 3 billion euros, okay? So we still own 50% of it. We wake up two years later, and the private equity company has monetized their stake. Okay, it's a nice press release to get in the morning. But they've monetized their stake, and they didn't do it at a 3 billion euro valuation. They did it at a 21 billion euro valuation. Wow. Because margins had gone from 5 to almost 20. Profitability had gone up 4x, and the multiple that they, you know, everyone figured out this was a pretty good business. So guess what? We still own half of it. So you know, the stock goes from 60, I think it's at 190 or 180. We still own it today, right? So example of a great business that's kind of hidden. There's a catalyst, and we can form a differentiated view, right? We're not looking for singles. We're looking for lots of returns. Just quickly, you mentioned going to the analyst that covers autos to to get him to pour into this. Can you talk? You were an analyst not too long yeah. ago. What's a day in the life look like for an analyst? And that resource for you to go to and say, I need you to dig into this. What are they, what kind of meetings are they doing? What kind of analysis are they pulling together? What are they accountable for? Yeah, I think every company, every, every analyst that works at Fidelity is kind of responsible for you know, active coverage of 20 to 30 stocks, right? And I think then you're also responsible for like tangentially what are, you know, stocks you don't cover, you're kind of responsible for everything else that's on, around that. Does that right? work so, out to about every listed stock in the world? Almost. Not every stock, in, uh, definitely in Canada. Uh, yeah. But if you think about, you know, our U.S. research team, you know, you're covering all the large caps and mid caps on the U.S. side. Globally, you know, I think we have either 60 analysts in London. You know, I think you, you, you asked about like where we're going, right? So like back in November, I was in London. I went, you know, was at a conference, met, I don't know, 10 or 12 new companies. But, you know, on the side, what am I doing? You know, so you do, the, you, do the, you do the meetings in the morning, and then I go back to the office, mm -hmm. right? And I sit down with all the analysts, and we kind of do, you know, two-minute drill, right, with all the analysts on what are your best ideas right now. Hmm. And, you know, if we have 60 people sitting there, you know, you get a smorgasbord, right? Everyone is going to have a couple good ideas, right? One or two ideas, you meet 50, 60 people, you got 100 ideas, or you're going through 100 ideas. And then Chris and I get to put our lens on that, right? That change, that dislocation. So we're kind of always filtering to find the best ideas. And, and it's really kind of a constant iterative process to make sure that the best ideas are reflected in the fund at all times. Interesting. There's a question that came in about the rapidly changing environment and how you ensure the portfolio remains agile. I guess that really has to do with your whole pattern. I mean, do you find there's a loyalty for small caps? Is there a longer hold period? Or is it is turn higher? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things I think is we have a constant flow of new ideas, right? So mm -hmm. the thing about company, you know, co when companies are always, companies are always changing management, launching new products, buying, selling companies, there's a constant flow. But then there's, you know, I think themes within the market, right? And you were, you were talking about AI with, with Will. I think we get less, I guess, well, not less excited. You know, I don't have any, you know, crystal ball of what 10 years looks like, mm -hmm. right? But the... You know, where we get excited, it's that, it's like, okay, what is the trend in the market that's creating a dislocation? So I'm less excited about picking winners right now on the side of AI. I'm more concerned about what companies are down a lot. So we had a great conversation recently with 
and I'm not going to say the name of the company, but it's an Italian IT services company. And, you know, we're kind of asking him, like, how is AI going to affect the business? And he said, you know, basically, I don't know. But he's like, let me give you a history of, like, th the last 30 years since I founded this company. I said, in the 90s, you know, we put PCs on everyone's desk in the office. And then we sold everyone application software, right, to run the PCs. Mm -hmm. And then we connected them to the internet. And then everyone got a cell phone, and we went mobile. And then we put everyone in the cloud, right? And then we started selling software as a service instead of license and, mm -hmm. license and maintenance on-premise. So as long as there's change, I'm going to be in business. But I don't know what that change or that technology is going to be. But as long as there is change, I'm going to be in business. Okay, but his stock is down 60 or 70%. And this is a company that has a history of growing earnings like 15 to 20% a year. So that's what I get interested in because all of a sudden, I am potentially getting the opportunity at temporary dislocation to buy something, a great earnings grower, it's growing double digits, you know, at a couple of the companies we're looking at, you know, eight to 12 times earnings, right? That sounds like a value stock to me. Private companies, can you have private companies in the portfolio? We don't invest in privates at this point. We are, uh, have, you know, we're a little over $500 million in AUM, but you know, at this, up until this point, have not had the uh, size to invest in privates, but it's something that we can look at in the future. But you keep an eye on them? Absolutely. For I think those you have that to. become public? I think you have to, right? I think you, know, you just look at something, uh, companies like you know, Uber, for example. Like, companies are staying private longer, right? So I think you need to have that glimpse, and I think the, the size and scale of Fidelity gives you that opportunity into that, or gives you that visibility into the private ecosystem, because you know, kind of going back to predictive, that, 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 what I talked about with predictability, well, something's only predictable. Like you have to make sure that something is resilient to change, right? And the best way to see if there is going to be change and disruptive change is to have an eye on what are new companies, what new companies are being born, what new, what new, uh, you know, competitive threats are there for, for companies in the industry. And we have the team to do that as well. Private Absolutely. research. So this last question is a good one, and <laughs> uh, I don't know where this is going to go, but it says, "Do you sleep better as an analyst or a portfolio manager?" Hundred <laughs> percent as an analyst. I think it's always the other, you know, if you ask analysts, they will probably say portfolio managers sleep better. No, I think like, you know, it's probably not great. I think as, uh, you know, as a global PM, you know, I wake up, you know, Europe opens at 3.30 in the morning. Japan opens at 7 o'clock at night. So, you know, I basically, you know, I wake up, the market's open, I go to bed, the market's open. Uh, but, well, balancing two yeah. young kids as well. Absolutely. But look, it's like, you know, it's kind of set off the top. Like, I've been obsessed with this the stock market since I was 12 years old. So Wonderful. this is what I want to do. I love it. Well, to you and Chris, congratulations on your success. It's been a few years, but it's been a few wonderful years. Wonderful support from the audience as well and those out in TV land. Um, and I think you've proven that this is a wonderful diversifier away from this concentrated market that everybody's focused on. What advisors always said to me was, that small cap world is where I can't go. Yeah. I can't get into the weeds. We've got the team to do that. So great for you uh, and Chris, and thank you for being here. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.
The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments.